getting back to the point from a B2B standpoint is I'm all on board with that. I believe the same thing is that speed or for me, speed combined with the least amount of time you consume of the buyer is the winning recipe. Now, people listening to this will be thinking to themselves, oh, well, Amazon's not a good example because they sell toilet paper. But it turns out they don't just sell toilet papers. One of their biggest businesses, guess what? Amazon Web Services. Enterprise services for, you know, mid to large companies. Turns out people want to buy that just like they buy toilet paper. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Justin Roth Marsh, and he's the author of The Machine, a radical approach to the design of the sales function, also the founder of Ballistics, a sales consultancy. And Justin's joining me today on Sales Enable, episode 787, to help challenge sort of the orthodox sales thinking on a number of topics, which is something I love doing. And you'll see why I love having Justin on the show to challenge the sort of conservative, hidebound thinking that dominates in sales. As the economy is opening up, sellers are thinking about returning to the field to meet with customers. Justin and I explore why salespeople often draw the wrong conclusion from the customer's agreement to meet with them in person, and why sellers shouldn't automatically draw the conclusion that face-to-face meetings are more effective than virtual meetings. We'll also dig into why Justin believes fewer sales tasks should be automated, and why managers should not attempt to impose a fixed sequence of tasks upon salespeople, because as attempts to do so decrease their productivity. And we'll dive into why managers and sellers should not attempt to plan sales at a level of granularity below the stage level. All very interesting stuff. Make sure you stick around. You're going to enjoy this. But before we get to Justin, we'll let you know the whole team of people who work to produce this podcast are incredibly grateful for all of you who support us by listening to the show, telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and most importantly, subscribing to the show and giving us your feedback in the form of a rating and review. And if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, please do. Uh, Search for Andy Paul after the slash, the usual LinkedIn preamble, it's real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Justin, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, Andy. It's great to see you again. So uh, where are you riding out the storm? I'm at home in Los Angeles where it's raining, believe it or not. It never rains in LA except except for this year where it seems to have rained all year, at least a decent chunk of it. Well, maybe it's washing the, the virus away a little bit. Into my pool, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Supposedly, pools are safe, uh, based on what I've been reading. Not that I would trust a pool, necessarily, but uh, yeah. What what do they say in the Air Force? Uh, 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 Big sky, small bullets? I I think the same would apply, you know, know, big water, small sneeze or something? Yeah, yeah. So It would take a lot of sneezing to contaminate a pool. So you're healthy and well other than that? Yes, yes, yes. All good. That's good. Um, yeah, I'm here in New York. It rained here today, too. Actually, it was uh, thunder and lightning or the last time I was re- last interview I was recording here today. So got a little background noise, but the sun has peaked through. But yeah, nobody on the streets. So I'm mean, interested, you know, because New York, obviously, Manhattan, it's a pedestrian town in terms of getting around. But what does L.A. feel like now? Um, well, I haven't been going out much, but when I do go out, the freeways are quiet, uh, which is which is un- unusual. Unusual, right? Yeah, it has a kind of a Mad Max quality to it. Appropriate <laughs> <laughs> um, for Hollywood. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, but really, we 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 haven't. My wife and I have basically been at home. We've been getting stuff delivered. I've been renovating a, a, a bathroom, completely rebuilding a bathroom here. Had it down to studs, and re- because what else are you going to do? Uh, so it's been working and renovating is all I've been doing. 
Yeah, well, it's nice that you're handy. You could do that. Mm-hmm. The joke in my household is if we need to change the light bulb, I need to call somebody to help. Yeah. I'm, I'm the opposite of that. No, I, I think if anything breaks around here, it's an excuse to buy another power tool. <laughs> <laughs> like Tim Allen back in Home Improvement yeah. Days. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you joining us again. Just we're going to talk through a couple issues. Um, as I enjoy reading your blog. I recommend people that listen to the show, read your blog, because you, I don't say you take necessarily a contrarian view. I think you take a, a, a logical view to many things, but it's, it's at odds oftentimes with a lot of what you sort of read and mainstream sales literature. So I, uh, I enjoy reading it because I sort of think along the same lines often. It's like, why is the conventional wisdom the conventional wisdom and why, have we, why are we still stuck with it? Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the articles I like that you'd written recently was about, um, actually I think you wrote it a year, a little over a year ago actually, was um, about salespeople confusing the signs and the signals they're getting when the customer agrees to a face-to-face meeting. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, if you remember that you're saying, uh, salespeople boast that if they can just get a face-to-face meeting with the prospect, their odds of winning a deal go up to 50%. And, and you're saying that's, uh, that's misleading. Yeah. So there's, uh, I remember years ago reading a book and it was talking about what, what, what I've called it called, heard it called different things, but in this particular book, the author was talking about the fallacy of composition. And his explanation was that the fallacy of composition is when you interview survivors of World War II and conclude that no one died. <laughs> <laughs> and you see, it, you, see the, you see this at play with the conclusion that salespeople typically draw that, you know, if, if, they can just, uh, if they can just get in their car and drive to visit with a customer face-to-face, that will cause the odds of them winning the deal to increase to some incredible number at 50% right. or 60%. And it's easy to see how they draw that conclusion because they look at the folks who they don't visit, visit face-to-face and th- their win rate is lower. But, if they look, but when they look at the folks who they do visit with face-to-face, their win rate is significantly higher. So they conclude that it's the face-to-face visit that causes the rapid escalation in the win rate. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, if you step back and think about it, it's probably not the most logical conclusion. The... To my mind, more logical conclusion would be that only folks who have an intention of purchasing are likely to say yes to a face-to-face visit from a salesperson, which means that when, particularly in this day and age, someone invites a salesperson to go and sit on their couch and drink their coffee, it's probably a foregone conclusion that they're going to get the business unless they do something, you know, unless they screw up. Is it a foregone conclusion they're going to get the business, or do you think it's more likely a signal that the customer is actually going to make a decision to purchase? Both. Yeah, I, I think I think it's more the that the more likely the customers made a decision to purchase. Yeah, salespeople like to think that they get invited to, you know, visit with their prospects or with their customers on the strength of their personality. Um, but you know, if you if you put those salespeople who claim that in a room and ask them, well, how many salespeople do you have over to your home or to your office on a regular basis, just so you can enjoy their warm and engaging personalities and you know they'll quickly admit well none none for none for me and none for him and none for him either and but but we but they expect their um their um their customers to exhibit behavior that's so totally different from theirs yeah which is doesn't make sense at all right none um but it, this sort of gets into this whole idea of of at least in my mind of of people sort of handicapping their odds of winning 
winning a deal. Because, yeah, you, everybody uses, not everybody, but you know, a good chunk of people use these sort of weighted probability forecasts that seem to be completely unmindful of the fact that they could be in a competitive situation that affects the odds. Just because they've assigned a 90% percent probability to winning a deal, if they give yeah. a proposal, there could be three other vendors giving a proposal. I think that there's a whole bunch of problems in sales that are a consequence of in, insufficient, what we would call opportunity queue size, what other people would call pipeline. Um, um, and when, when a salesperson has a chronic shortage of people to sell to, then their focus switches to trying to, uh, you know, m maximize their conversion rate. And, and, and that approach is based upon the idea that, that, a, that a salesperson influences a, a lot of control over whether or not customers are going to purchase. And, and, it's, and it's not true. They don't. You know, customers are not idiots. They purchase when it makes commercial sense, and they choose not to purchase when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And if a customer has two options, they'll choose the one that makes the most sense. And people behave, for the most part, rationally. Uh, um, and it's easy to point to you know, border cases where folks do things that are irrational, or at least appear to a salesperson sure. to be irrational. But it doesn't make sense to build sales functions or build businesses on on. Uh, 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 based upon an assumption that people are irrational because those businesses go broke. You, you know, the, the success of Amazon, for example, is based on a very simple bet that Bezos made, and that is that if you can deliver stuff, stuff faster, people will buy it from you rather than from your competitors. And it turns out that he's shockingly correct. Mm-hmm. And we say that to our clients, look, speed wins. That, that's, that's, the, that's the playing field that we should be competing on. Speed in what dimension? In every dimension. Well, I'm thinking about, is it speed or is it actually the, a combination of speed and the actual amount of their time you consume? Of the prospect's time? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, a consequence of speed is you consume less time, not more. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you could have... You know, five visits over a shorter period of time, but each of those visits could take, in aggregate, could take more than four visits over the same time. Yeah, but does a, does, a, does a prospect want to have five visits? Why would they want to have five visits with no, a salesperson? I'm, I'm why not, not saying in-person visit. Three? But I'm, yeah, but, but conversations. Why not Conversations, three? right. Oh, I agree. I agree. They want, they want three. That's what I'm saying. To me, it's, it's, the productivity is all about... Yeah, and actually, and actually, for most transactions, customers want none. If they could. Which is why in Texas and New York and other states... Um, car dealerships are terrified of the Tesla model because owners well, are universally they are yes yeah the, it's not just they're scared of Tesla it's that they know that customers don't want to talk to salespeople and yeah I did some I saw a study three years the, ago the only the, people sorry to interrupt yeah right. the only people the only car customers who want to talk to salespeople are people who don't like cars anybody who likes cars does not want to talk to a car salesperson because car salespeople know sweet FA about cars well, three three years ago, four years ago, I saw a study from National Automotive National Automotive Dealers Association, and at that time, four years ago, average number of dealer visits before purchasing a car was one. Yeah. To your point, right? It's it it was already occurring then. Yeah, and that's probably the visit when they <laughs> when they signed when they the bought paperwork. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And why would you? Yeah, I mean, most I'm sure most people who who buy Teslas have never driven one. Mm-hmm. 
most of the things I buy, I buy without, you know, I, I buy cars without driving. I'm a Porsche guy. I love Porsches. I, if, and, and most people who like cars uh, will, buy the, will buy the latest vehicle without, without driving it. They'll read the reviews. Uh -huh. They'll look at the specifications. So, you know, um, that's why they don't want Tesla, because they know that if customers have a choice between a high involvement sell, uh, buying process and a low involvement buying process, they'll go with the low enrollment process. If they can go to the website and enter their credit card details, that's what they're going to do. Yeah, so I agree. So getting back to the point from, from a B2B standpoint is I'll, I'm all on board with that. I, I believe the same thing is that speed or, for me, speed combined with the least amount of time you consume yeah. of the, the buyer is the winning, the winning recipe. Now, people listening to this will be thinking to themselves, oh, well, Amazon's not a good example because they sell toilet paper. But it turns out they don't just sell toilet papers. One of their biggest businesses, guess what? Amazon Web Services. Absolutely. Yeah. So enterprise services for you know mid to large companies. Mm -hmm. Turns out people are people want to buy that just like they buy toilet paper. Though they do have a large number of SDRs making call proactive outbound calls. Do, do they? How big a sales yeah. team do they actually have? Do you think? I know they have channel partners. Um, but I know a company that sells them the the platform they use for the outbound dialing. So some number, I don't know the exact yeah. number. Because we, we give Amazon thousands of dollars a month. I don't know the exact number, probably five, six, seven thousand dollars a month. For AWS? Yeah, AWS. Yeah. Um, n never heard from a salesperson. Yeah, I think it depends on the size of the, the account, right? More complex, the bigger size, you're more likely to get a salesperson. Yeah, so if you're, if you're you know, General Motors, I'm sure you're hearing from a, from a salesperson. But, you know, if you're spending a paltry five, six, seven thousand dollars a month. Uh, you're on your own. Enter your credit card details. Exactly. As the way it should be, yeah. But I mean, so is 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 just wondering is to your point is because I I, said, I think for a large part I agree is that we tend to and sort of gets into the second article I want to talk about but we we tend to force customers to buy we want to sell the way we want to sell to them so we force them to apply or comply or if you will or align with our sales process. Mm. I agree. And what we should be doing is trying to figure out how to make it as easy as possible for customers to purchase. Yeah, I think one of the Bezos is, I have a quote him in one of my books is that, because I think it was just brilliant, sort of definition of sales, which was our job is to help customers make purchase decisions. Yep. It's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. Yeah. He said, we don't make money when we sell things, we make money when we help customers make purchase decisions. And the best way to help them is to minimize the human involvement until you can get rid of it altogether. And I think that it doesn't matter what you're selling. If you're selling something that requires a high involvement, um, you, you should be thinking about how do we incrementally reduce that involvement from year to year to the point where ultimately um, um, customers can buy with zero involvement. Yeah, I mean, you're basically... I mean, I look at it through the lens of of a productivity measure. If we assume, you know, a factory measures productivity, a rate of output per unit of input invested, I've thought for a long time that we should measure sales using that same measure. You know, how many dollars of revenue per hour of actual selling time are you generating? Mm. And the more and more productive you get in that measure, to your point, the less and less time you spend with the customer. 
Now there will always be a need for there will always be a need for people who shake the tree, who who compel who compel um, prospective clients to take a turn they wouldn't have otherwise taken, absent the mm-hmm. involvement of the salesperson. And to my right. mind, that's the essence of sales. That's what salespeople should be in, engaged in doing. But a typical person, a typical salesperson, spends only a tiny percentage of their time engaged in anything like that. The greater percentage of their time would be a, a better analog would be a checkout operator at a local grocery store. Because, because there's a if you're standing if you're standing in a queue with a checkout operator, there's an inverse relationship between time spent and value added. <laughs> yeah, a negative relationship, not a positive right. relationship. Right. Well, that's why I, that's why I got back to what I talking about in terms of measuring productivity. That way is is in sales, we seem to want to measure things as productivity that don't lead to an order. Hmm. We count it as productive time. You know, mm. if you're in a factory and you're making 10 widgets an hour, let's say your goal is to make 10 widgets an hour, but you make nine because 10% of the widgets you make are unusable. Even though you went through the process of building 10, that doesn't mean your productivity is 10 widgets per hour. It's nine because mm. you, can't, you can't, you can only sell nine. Yet in sales, we'll say somebody's productivity is to make, you know, 10 calls per hour. But, you know, if only two of those lead to conversations that then turn into... Sales. Well, What's I'm the real sure I agree there. I, I, th- I think new product development is actually a pretty good analog for sales in that respect. There's a famous story of Edison trying out all those filaments sure. mm-hmm. for, for, for the light bulb, and obviously most of the experiments he did looking for filament went nowhere. But you know, at, at some point he ended up with you know um, with a decent sized business grown off the back of. Very large business. Tungsten, I think, was the winning element. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think sales is like that. Uh, I think you have to understand that most activities resolve to nothing uh, when viewed in retrospect, but activities aren't performed in retrospect. Uh, um, so what that means is that if you're doing an accounting for sales effort, you have to assign a notional value to the activities that resolve to nothing because you don't know and you don't know in advance which ones those are going to be. No, but retroactively you can go back and look and say, these were not productive. So what are we going to change going forward to make these more productive? You can, but that that may not be the that may not be the best course of action. A better course of action would be to say, well, how do we double the flow? But then you if you just double the flow, it's you put more and I because I have this conversation with SaaS sales leaders, you know, if you're just Doubling the flow, you know, double the amount of crap we put at the top of the funnel, then we're not treating, you know, we're not looking at the idea of effectiveness at all. And isn't that, in my mind, that's hugely important. No, it's much less important than people think. And the reason for be the reason for that is that um, is that um, it sounds easy to say, well, we'll filter out the crap. So we'll an, we'll analyze we'll analyze the deals that we win and the deals that we'll lose, and we'll we'll figure out an algorithm that allows us to filter out the crap in advance, so that the salespeople only talk to the deals that we want to win. Conceptually, it's easy to do. Practically, it's extremely difficult to do. Turns out, it's extremely easy to increase flow. Extremely easy sure. to increase. Sure, that's flow. why companies are doing it. Yeah. So I learned this years ago. So uh, a business I was involved with before um, Ballistics was was a financial services business and. We sold a fairly expensive, fairly complex financial services product to mums and dads, and and we 
stumbled across the idea, and this was before it became popular, um, um, of running events. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started off, we'd put, you know, 10 people in, in a room and then we'd put 30 people in a room and we used to go to the Milton Tennis Center in, in Brisbane, Australia. And then we ended up uh, with a hundred people and we graduated to sort of Sheraton hotels. And, um, wh- when I left the company, some of the events had 1200 plus people, um, sure. at them. And, uh, um, I remember as we were building Hudson, I used to have conversations with other people in financial planning or financial services, and they'd always turn their noses up at us. They'd say, well, you just put hundreds of people in events. And I would say, yeah, we put hundreds of people in events. And and they they didn't have to complete the sentence. I knew what they were thinking. They say you put hundreds of people in events, but but so what? You're filling rooms up with riffraff. But guess what? If you fill a room up with hundreds of people, we end up talking to significantly more high net worth individuals than you you do when you fill your room up with precisely no one. Right. Wasn't the point I wasn't the point I was making though. The point was at some point you need to be able to filter down to say who's worth our time. That's not necessarily happening at the top, but one of the things that we seem to have a problem with, I believe, in B2B sales is an indiscriminate desire to hold things into the pipeline that don't belong there anymore, who aren't a fit. Yeah, and so through inadequate discovery, inadequate qualification, we get to the close stage, yeah. or what people anticipate is a close stage, and people say, well, we're not ready, or this doesn't fit what we need, or whatever, and they're taken by surprise. So the caveat that I would add to my own point is that people should only be in the pipeline if they want to be in the pipeline, not if salespeople want them to be in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, I often have conversations with organizations and they'll say, but Justin, we sell enterprise software. Unless we aggressively qualify, we end up, we'll end up with our pipeline full of fish and chip shop operators. And I will say to them, well, why would the operators of fish and chip shops want to be in your pipeline in the first place? How many owners of fish and chip shops actually have an interest in buying enterprise software? Turns out none of them. None of them want to be in the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the only way that a enterprise sales company ends up with fish and chip shop owners in their pipeline is if they jam them in there. Um, now, if you can find a way to fill your pipeline with people who actually want to be there, then you will end up discovering when you go and survey them that none of them own fish and chip shops. All of them are enterprises with right. very few exceptions. And the exceptions are so few, it's not worth the effort to filter them out anyway. So I would say the caveat is if, if you design your funnel in such a way that people are in your pipeline of their own volition, then a bigger pipeline wins. How do you do that? Well, by not being stupid. <laughs> <laughs> people need better advice than that. Though. <laughs> well, I... I I'm interested in how do we end up how do we end up with a whole bunch of people in the pipeline who, who shouldn't be there, like you know the, the enterprise software companies. Do they right. really have pipelines full of fish and chip shop owners, or do the salespeople just say they do? Turns out they don't. The pipe the pipelines are full of sales opportunities. The salespeople are just so busy performing non sales tasks, they're trying to shirk what should be their primary responsibility, and that's having selling conversations with people. I mean the whole idea behind this value-destroying concept of qualification that salespeople rabbit on about is that salespeople only want to engage with folks who have budget and who, and who are in the process of making a purchasing decision. I mean, my whole career in sales was spent selling to people who don't have budget and who mm-hmm. are not in the process of making a purchasing decision. Exactly. And my view is, is that that's the role of a salesperson, but 
but that's that's a very unusual role. That's a very unusual view in sales. Most salespeople think that they should be standing there pulling the handle on the cash register. Well, is part of that a function, I think, these days of, of sort of losing sight of what the real objective is? And you just outlined it in your words. I might say it a little bit differently, which is, and I take you know, take this a little bit you know, as a way of illustration, is I don't know if you remember uh, Gartner came out with their buyer enablement chart mm. two years ago. And it's this complex flow chart of the buyer's process and the jobs they want to get done. And for at the enterprise level, it's just, they call it their spaghetti diagram because it's Looks like uh, you know two handfuls of cooked spaghetti thrown against the wall. That inspires confidence. <laughs> and right, and what they said is, you know, buyers basically identified four jobs they need to get done. Mm. Identify requirements, uh, or define, yeah, identify requirements uh, or the problem. You know, research possible solutions. Uh, finalize the requirements. Choose a vendor. And it seems like increasingly. We're training people just to focus on that last one, which is choose the vendor. But to the point you made before is you're talking to people didn't have budget, didn't have need. That mm. all takes place in those first three jobs, right? Well, before them almost. I mean, a, cust- a customer, do- a prospect doesn't know what their requirements are until they have written their own prognosis. So I would say the buyer's journey starts with symptoms. Well, that's what they put under the ID requirements. If you see the whole flow chart. But, yeah. I mean, no, I, I don't agree. There's a, there's a gap between the symptoms and the requirements because in order to go from symptoms to requirements, you need a prognosis in the middle. So requirements is the prescription you take the, to the pharmacy, but the symptoms are what you go to the doctor with. The doctor connects the doctor connects the symptoms with the disease and writes your prescription. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. Their third job was identifying, find, building their requirements, building their spec, right? Hmm. But I think so. They identified the, identify the problem, find research potential solutions. I mean, the way people make decisions is they choose, they formulate their options and decide what are our options for solving this problem. And they'll choose an option, then say, okay, now who, who can we work with that can help us solve that? Yeah, my point is that the salespeople should be actively looking for people who haven't recognized they have a problem yet. They have symptoms, but they haven't. I agree. Figured but, out what I, the but we're is. saying the same thing, using yeah. different terms. Because if the salesperson can connect, if the salesperson can be the one who says, "Hey, you have this list of symptoms. This is what I think the problem is." If the if the salesperson writes the prescription, they've elevated their likelihood of. If the salesperson does the progno, prognosis and writes the prescription, they've elevated their likelihood of making the of winning. Agree. That's ex- you're using different words. It was exactly what I'm saying. Is but so often now, sellers are just focused on once the customers made up their mind what what the prescription is. Yep. We're just competing to become yep. the phar- the pharmacy. Yeah, exactly. Their view is if the customer is not walking around with prescription in hand, looking for someone to fill it, then they're not a qualified prospect. Right. And so then what you're getting is we're going to compete on price. Yep. Price and lead time. Right. And so what happens is that I call this decision <laughs> the the difference between helping somebody make their choice versus helping them make their decision. They got to choose how they want to what their as you point symptoms are, how they're going to solve this problem, define how they want to solve it not who they want to solve it with. And what I see is the bulk of selling is people are being trained is let's just focus on once they've decided they want to buy something and what they want to buy, then we're going to compete for that business. And this is where the whole challenger model fits in. Because in order for a salesperson to bridge the gap between the symptoms and the prognosis, they have to be a challenger. If I go to my doctor and I say to my doctor, I think I have malaria, he will say, you're an idiot. 
get off Google, <laughs> sit down in the damn chair and tell me what the symptoms are and I'll tell you what you've got. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not malaria. Uh, um, and really that's the essence of the challenger approach, but it's only relevant. I mean, everyone's buying challenger training for their salespeople. It's completely irrelevant because their salespeople are, are, are qualifying anyone at who's not wandering around with the prescription. The irony is the challenger approach is only relevant on the occasions where you approach someone that has a bunch of symptoms and hasn't yet been given a prescription or figured out their own prescription. Yeah, I mean, in which case you may not even be challenging. I mean, you're actually guiding them at that point. They may not have a preconception about how they want to solve that problem. Mm. Well, yeah, or they might have come up with the wrong-headed. So in our case, what happens with us is organizations approach us and say, you sell sales training. And I say, why would you want to buy sales training? What's the what's the set of symptoms you're mm-hmm. coping with that have caused you to draw the conclusion that you need sales training? They'll say, well, this and this and this. I'll say, well, if you have this, this and this, I would also predict you have this, this and this. And they say, oh, how did you know that? And say, well, because I recognize the underlying root cause. And they say, oh, do you have a solution for that? I said, well, it turns out I do have it, but you're not interested in it because you want sales training. They say, no, 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 we don't want sales training anymore. So that's where the challenger piece comes in. Yeah. No, that does. Absolutely. And that, that model? Absolutely. Because most people who have symptoms have a, have a theory as to what the cause of those symptoms are. True. To some degree. I agree. Mm. Wrong-headed, but they have some theory. They, g- generally, they've concluded they need more software. The solution <laughs> to most problems is more software. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yes. In the eyes of many people, that is the case. Yeah. Yeah, there, there must be a software for that. There must be a software, must be an app for that. Um, so another more recent piece you had written that I really enjoyed was the part about uh, Richard Dawkins, or the blind watchmaker, I guess is how you titled it. <laughs> okay, I'm glad someone read that. I got absolutely zero response to that. Really? No, I enjoyed that a lot. I, I, yeah, well, I enjoyed writing it, so I didn't care that no one else liked it. Oh, so there's two, two of us who enjoyed it. Yeah, so uh, tell us the story about that's one Richard Dawkins book I have not read, but um, tell us sort of the, the background about that story in the blog. So, um, I mean, Dawkins has a Dawkins has a a wonderful love for science, um, and uh, he 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 remind he reminds me of uh, who's a chap who, who's kind of the physicist of he's the Feynman? he's like. No, well, yeah, yeah. So Feynman isn't who I was thinking about, but I do love watching Feynman videos. Uh, but and I think a lot of a lot of the a lot of the scientists are like that. They 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 manage to find like an artistry and a passion and a romance in science that most of us think that you could only find in the arts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I suspect they're finding it to a much greater degree than many folks do who are looking for it. In, in the arts. And, and I think that I, I like the blind watchmaker because of, uh, for that reason. Um, I've, I used it, I'm just going, I don't remember the point that I was making. Our sales shouldn't be automated. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you the story behind that. We have a, a client in Australia and they're a, um, a, a software company. And there's a chap in there who I love a lot. Um, who's a process engineer, one of the smartest human beings I've ever come across. And, I was having this argument with him because he's built this kind of task automation software that's been extremely successful for their software develop in their software development environment, and they have literally thousands of software developers in their organization. And 
he was turning his attention to sales and his default assumption was, um, okay, all we've got to do is automate the tasks that occur within sales. Um, and I was having an argument with him that spanned a number of discussions over a number of months. And I was trying to get him to understand that sales is not deterministic, like a production environment. Mm-hmm. You, don't have a, you don't have a fixed sequence of tasks. And I was trying to come up with an analog uh, because he was saying, but in production we do X. And, and he's, he was saying to me, Justin, you've always used production as an analog for sales. And I said, yeah, I absolutely have. A lot of what we've done in sales has been cribbing ideas from production. But we need to understand where the, where the metaphor breaks and the metaphor is broken. So I'm looking for a better metaphor. And um, I came up with this idea that um, what, what sales is like where tasks are concerned, it, it, it's like if you, 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 you found someone who knew what a watch looked like, uh, you know, a watchmaker, mm-hmm. and, and you, you took a bunch of watches and you disassembled them into, their, into a pile of components. So you, let's say, had 10 watches and you broke them apart and, and, uh, and you had on the desk this big pile of bits of watches and you completely uh, broke the watches down into their, you know, screws and nuts and cogs and glass lenses and so, and so on. And, and, and you, you got a watchmaker or a number of watchmakers, you blindfolded them and, uh, um, and you had them kind of reach in, put gloves on through holes in a box, like they're manipulating nuclear material and right. told them that they had to assemble these watches. And, um, and the point that I was making to James is that sales is very much like what you would be observing if you were watching these blind watchmakers attempting to assemble watches from a pile of parts. And and to begin with, the process would be very much stochastic. They'd fumble around all over the place, and they'd randomly trying, be trying pieces together. Right. Unpredictable. Yeah. Every now and again, they, and then there'd be no science to it at all, no logic to it at all. It would be It would start off completely random. But, but eventually what would happen is they'd manage to snap, snap a couple of parts together. Um, and then as soon as they snapped a couple of parts together, maybe they snap a couple more together and they would end up having a breakthrough where uh, over a period of days or weeks or maybe years or perhaps decades, they would have assembled a sub-assembly of a, of a, of a watch. And each time they assemble a sub-assembly, the, the rest of the process becomes uh, easier. So each, each sub-assembly would kind of resemble a quantum leap to a new level of much lower complexity because, of course, mm-hmm. um, they have more information now and the, number, the size of the parts pile that they're assembling watches from would have di- diminished significantly in size. Um, um, and, and that's very much what sales is like. You, 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 know, you fumble around, you perform a whole bunch of activities, and then suddenly you end up with somebody progressing from one stage to the next. And it's like a material change, like like a phase shift from you know from steam to water and water to ice, um, a material change, uh, and that's what we would call a stage in opportunities. And but you're still fumbling after that phase shift. It's just that is it's just that there's that, that your activity is a little less random, and the, that's the point that I was making to him. You, you can't automate sales activities to the same degree you can automate. Production activities, because with production activities, there's a fixed routing. There's a series of activities that must be performed in a, in a given sequence. Or even if there are multiple possible sequences, there are very few degrees of freedom if you want to have a, a part that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but with sales, you, you don't have that routing. Um, it, you don't know what it is in advance. Now, a lot of people 
try and reverse engineer cells and, and pretend that uh, we should have known in advance because we can see what happens in arrears. You know? Perfect, you know, what did I say, 2020 in hindsight? Yeah. Um, but anyone who's been in cells for more than 10 minutes knows that, no, it's not deterministic, it's stochastic. But it doesn't mean there isn't some. It doesn't mean there isn't some uh, predictability. There is, but only at the level of stages. So you, in the article, you say that managers should not attempt, should not attempt to impose a fixed sequence of tasks upon salespeople. Doing so will decrease no. productivity and damage the integrity of information ultimately extracted from the CRM. So, how do you see that damaging productivity? Um, the fixed sequence. It, of- it isn't possible to know the fixed sequence of tasks in advance. So pretending to know when you can't possibly know will never increase productivity. So why do people persist? Oh, lack of understanding of sales. This is becoming more of the case than less the case, I think, these days in sales. Is especially managers perhaps that are a little more new, see companies, hey, here's our sales process. We've got this linear-based stage sales, stage process. Linear yep, based you do stage step one, by- then you do step two. Then you do step well, two. One of, the reason, one of the reasons why people persist is it's easy to model that in technology. It's like the blind man looking for his car keys. You know that one? No. The police officer comes across, it's not a blind man, sorry, he's a, a drunk, a drunk man looking for his car right, keys. I've, I've heard a, that a one, yeah. police officer comes across a drunk uh, look, looking for his car keys underneath the st- streetlight. And the policeman says, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my car keys. He said, well, how did your car keys come to be under here? Where's your car? He said, my car's over there. He said, so how did your keys come to be here? He said, well, I can't see over there. It's too dark. <laughs> um, so one of, the, one of the reasons why management you know, builds these deterministic models is it's much easier to do in software than it is the, the, the alternative. Um, we do it because we can, but it doesn't mean it's smart. So you know, w- we have a reputation for building these very mechanistic sales environments and it's true, they're extremely structured sales environments. But if you look at, if you go and sit behind one of our client salespeople, they have enormous degrees of freedom. We queue up opportunities for them. We demand the same volume of activities every single day, but we don't dictate which activities they perform. We don't dictate the sequence in which they perform them. We don't dicta- dictate the priorities, who they talk to. We leave all that up to the salesperson because we know that sales at the coalface is messy. And, and we don't want to try and uh, pretend to know stuff we 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 know for sure that we don't know. Mm-hmm. So when you say they have a certain number of activities, but the mix is up to them. So give us an example. Well, we want to know when an opportunity progresses from one stage to a next, but we don't. We're not looking for information that's any more granular than that other than an, uh, having an awareness of the volume of tasks. So in other words, we want to, to go back to the watchmaker analysis. Mm-hmm. We want the blind watchmaker to put his hands in the box and we want him to fumble, fumble around. And we know that there's an optimal rate of, of fumbling, but we're not going to try and tell him, we're not going to try and equip him with an exact process for fumbling. Because it turns out that putting your hands in the box and fumbling around is the best way of of, of coming up with a subassembly. Now, so we don't want visibility at the fumbling level other than an awareness of volume. That's all we care about. Uh, but of course, we do want to know when you, whenever you assemble a subassembly. So where opportunity management is concerned, we are interested in stages. Mm-hmm. We're interested in those milestone events that indicate a um, material change in the nature of the deal that you're pursuing. 
But outside of that, it's up to the salesperson to fumble around. Okay. Do you define what constitutes achieving a certain stage? Is it commitment-based, or how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, um, there are yeah. So there are certain commitments that, that that a prospect will make to a salesperson that are meaningful. They indicate a meaningful change in the dynamic of the opportunity, the nature of the relationship, uh, um, and we absolutely want to measure those things. And sometimes it's it's sim- stupidly simple stuff. When you talk to a prospect for the first time and they say, "Yeah, I'd like to schedule an eight-minute briefing," you know, to go from nothing to for, to go from no commitment to 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 any kind of commitment is a massive achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 and, and and you know, obviously, a request for quote is a meaningful change in in our world and a lot of our clients' world. If they're selling, you know, uh, enterprise services. You know, to sell what we call a solution design workshop. If someone writes you a check for ten or fifteen thousand dollars to go on site and run a two-day workshop with them, that's a a very meaningful commitment. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're we're of course we're very interested in those things. We're, uh, we're and what we're keen to do is to compress the amount of time between the achievement of each of those milestone events. Agreed, absolutely. Put your hands in the box and keep fumbling around with those parts. And we're going to engineer the environment so there's absolutely nothing to distract you from sitting there with your hands in the box, fumbling around with those parts. Meaning non-sales activities. Yeah, no non-sales activities because, unfortunately, the nature of sales, it's messy at the coalface. You've got to put your hands in in the box and you've got to fumble around, fumble around, fumble around until suddenly someone said yes. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And that kind of it's kind of a loop back to the point about pipeline. You know, uh, a, a lot of the questions I get asked about sales, I don't want to answer because they're questions that are describing. They're questions around a problem, or or they're questions looking for a solution to a problem that would not exist if you had sufficient pipeline. I have a dear friend who w- was emailing and phoning me. You know, he's a wealthy guy, very successful, but he wanted to do. He wanted my help to do like an autopsy of an opportunity that he was so close to winning and lost. And it was a big deal, mm-hmm. uh, um, like multi-million dollar deal, and he lost it. And he was like, can you help me figure out what I did wrong? And I said, why? And he said, well, I would like to know so I don't miss out on the next one. I said, Henry, how many other deals do you have in your pipeline of a similar size? He said, none. That's why I need your help with this one. I said, no, this is why you don't need my help with this one. Because sales is probabilistic. If you'd known that going in, you wouldn't have only had one deal in the pipeline. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, if, you're tr- if you're trying to sell your business and it's a one-off event, fair enough. Sure. But if you actually sell stuff for a living, and why would, you design, why would you design your sales functions so that the sale was a one-off event? You know, you you have to meet payroll every single month. Mm-hmm. You, you have to maintain a pipeline of opportunities. You know, and unfortunately, the types of measures you would take, the type of the the the, the type of measures that you would make if you were pursuing a single one-off deal, like selling your your business, would be in many in many cases the complete opposite of the types of measures you would take if you were trying to build a machine to do that. Right. That generate. Yeah. Yeah. So for him, was your point that, A, you should either be identifying more similar opportunities or, hey, that was too big for you and there's a more 
ideal opportunity for you that can fill your pipeline. Yeah, it's like if if you need to do these deals to stay in business, if that's the you know one of the requirements of your business, then then um, make sure you have a pipeline of a sufficient size to enable you to survive with a realistic win rate. Now, realistic win rate with enterprise sales is t- is single digit percentages, uh, probably less than that, probably somewhere between 0.1 and three or four percent of. of deals that you pursue are going to, you know, of qualified opportunities. No, no. With, well, I don't entertain the idea of qualification of opportunities full stop. <laughs> okay. So think of it like a, like a wild cat, you know, chasing rabbits, you know, a percentage of the rabbits that you chase will. So if we define an opportunity as something you chase, forget about qualification. Um, if you're honest and you count all of the, all of the rabbits that you chase, if you count them all mm-hmm. um, and you do the math, you will end up concluding that the number that the, the ratio of rabbits you chase to rabbits you catch is 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, somewhere between decimal one and maybe two or three percent, somewhere in that range. It's a small percentage. Um, and that's pretty constant for every organization. If you meet a salesperson who says my win rate is 20 percent, it's because they're only measuring a tiny subset of the opportunities they pursue, or they pursue nothing at all. Or they're just counting based on qualified opportunities. I know you, we can have a, well, that's what I mean. you come back and we can talk about qualification. I didn't realize you, you didn't like Well, that's what I mean by pursuing a subset. That's what salespeople do. You, you know, they go to a trade show, they come back with a hundred names and they, they conclude that only six of them are qualified. Well, how do they conclude that only six of them are qualified? They ring all hundred of them and interview them. Well, hang on those, those hundred calls, do they not constitute sales activity? Of course, they constitute sales activity. Mm-hmm. The only way you can de- determine whether someone's quali- qualified or not is ring them and have a sales conversation with them. So, if you have a sales conversation with them, h- how does it make sense to conclude that wasn't really a sales conversation because it wasn't a qualified opportunity? It's it's circular logic. Well, it is right. At some point, somebody somebody you have to distinguish people who are either qualified to buy or not qualified to buy. Yeah, it's like saying I don't want to eat rabbits that have myxomatosis. And it turns out the only way you discover they have myxomatosis is to chase them and catch them. You know, sure. And then to say, well, I don't want to calculate my success rate based upon um, total rabbits I chase. I only want to calculate my success rate based upon the number of rabbits that I chased that turned out not to have myxomatosis after I caught them. No, that's bullshit. You have to chase all those damn rabbits. All right, I'll have to think about that. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I buy that necessarily, but um, in terms of how... Because how else, do you tell me, how else do salespeople qualify prospects other than by talking to them? Oh, that's how they do it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're talking to them, guess what? It's a sales conversation. Yeah. Imagine you're the prospect on the other end of the phone being interviewed by a salesperson who wants to know whether you have budget and whether, you have, whether you're planning on making a purchasing decision. Does that sound like a co- selling conversation to you? No, but I mean, from... A qualification standpoint is you can be more precise in how you qualify. At some point, you have to. It it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter how you do it. The customer's perception is this is a selling conversation. Sure. They just had a conversation with a salesperson. It's a selling conversation. It's a meaningless distinction. It only appears to be a meaningful distinction in retrospect. Twenty twenty vision in hindsight. So, in in your mind, how does how does a how does a salesperson make a decision about how to allocate their limited time? Well, they have to differentiate between the stuff they know in advance and the stuff they discover in arrears. If you're a, if you're a, a, a if you're a cat 
and you like rabbits. And the only way for you to differentiate between the rabbits with myxomatosis and the ones that are healthy is for you to chase them, then it's pointless for you to make a distinction post hoc based upon knowledge you couldn't have had ad hoc. <laughs> okay. But same thing is true. Salespeople, you've only got a certain amount of time. So 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 at some so at some point you need to narrow yeah, so the, if, you need if, to narrow down you the give, number that you're If you chasing. can show me an algorithm that I can run in CRM that will tell me with confidence that these are the people who will not buy, I won't approach them. But you need a convers once you have a conversation with them, you can start just determining that. Exactly. But once I have a conversation with them, I'm applying effort to them. Yeah. So if we don't call that effort selling, what do we call it? Well, I, I agree. That's selling. We could, we could call it qualification. The problem with calling it qualification is if we say, well, there's two types of effort. There's selling effort and qualification effort. The, 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 the implication is that we have two pots of effort that we're allocating from. We have the, we have the, we have, but, but, but we only have one salesperson. Yeah, it's all sales. Sure. Yeah, we don't have two people, a qualification person and a... I mean, some people try and do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it sort of seems like a semantic difference. I mean, it's, it's you're still... But it makes us... No, it's not semantics. It, it impacts on the maths. You talk to a salesperson who calculates their win rate based upon qualified opportunities, their win rate is going to be 20 or 30%. Sure. But if you calculate the win rate based upon all the rabbits they chase, their win rate is going to be single digits. That's an order of magnitude difference. That's a very wrong answer. What's wrong with it? Well, the, the number is out by, by a factor of 10 times. No, but I mean, as a measure, independent measure itself, what's wrong with that measuring that you're able to win X percent of your qualified opportunity? If I was a, if I was a dispassionate observer, if I was an actuary or an economist, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I approached sales, and I, and I said, I wonder, I wonder what the salesperson's win rate is. That's analogous to me asking of a wild cat, how many rabbits does he chase? I would expect the win rate to be calculated on successful chases as a percentage of total number of chases. But when we're in an environment today where oftentimes the salesperson, the seller, actually is not originating the opportunity, somebody else is doing that and handing it to them, how are you measuring that? Well, we would measure it from when it's handed to them, but actually what happens is when you, in most environments, when salespeople get handed opportunities, they don't actually deem them to be opportunities until they've qualified them. Right. So the salesperson will get on the phone. So the question is, is the salesperson actually deploying sales effort or do they have an extra bucket hidden under their desk with free effort in it called qualification <laughs> effort? Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. It's all, it's all sales. It's, all, it's effort. There's only one bucket containing effort. The salesperson has eight hours of effort a day. Mm -hmm. Once it's run out, once the day's run out, they've run out of effort for the day. They don't have two separate effort buckets. No. So, so if we want to calculate... <laughs> There's labels to attach to the effort, though. If we want to, it doesn't matter. If we want to calculate their productivity, we have to look at, uh, at, um, at output divided by effort. Yeah, well, I said that earlier. Dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time. Mm. Mm. That's productivity. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, and and from a win rate ratio, what it resolves down to is 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 prospects pursued versus prospects caught, relative to prospects caught. I, I could agree with that. If if yeah, if we we're going to standardize on that, perfect. Yeah. So where we got started on this was is the win in enterprise sales. The win rates are really really low. 
So there should be an inverse relationship between the win rate and the and the the pipeline size. So if you're winning one percent, well, there, there absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. If you're winning one percent and you want to do one deal a month, you better have one hundred deals in pipeline at all times. So my problem with Henry when he came to me and said, well, "Can we do an autopsy to find out why we didn't win this deal?" My question was, "How many of these deals do you need to win a month?" Well, one a month. How many do you have in your pipeline? None. Well. Why, would, why are we talking about that deal? Why don't we talk about the obvious problem, which is a lack of pipeline? Now, the reason I don't want to have the conversation about winning the deal is that the conclusions that we draw as a consequence of a conversation about why we didn't win the deal are going to cause us to make changes to the design of the sales environment that make it impossible for us to have pipeline of the size that we need in order to consistently win deals. So if you think about two scenarios. Let's say there are two $5 million deals. One mm -hmm. is when you build your business up and you sell it to a private equity firm for $5 million, let's say. And the other is when you go to a big company and sell them your services for $5 million. Mm -hmm. The difference between those two deals is the first one, you only ever want to do it once. The second one, you, you want to do it All once a quarter, let's right. say. And the process that you build, the way that you go about both of those transactions will be completely differently. Dif different. Mm -hmm. The big difference would be if it takes three years to sell your business to a private equity firm for $5 million, you don't care how long it takes. Right. You're going to optimize for dollars, not for lead time. But if you, you, if, you're, if you need to do one deal a quarter, you're going to optimize for lead time, not for dollars. Yeah. No, no disagreement. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think an area I'd like have another conversation about is explore down is, is yeah, there's more on this. This idea of what constitutes win rate and and productivity, because I think these are both, you know, I, th I think we're sort of lost at sea a lot of times in sales of this whole thing, and so we're trying to say what are the levers we can really pull or manipulate that are have an impact at the end of the day in, on performance, hmm. because so much of sales these days is just set up to your point earlier about automating sales processes, and we don't really focus on performance. Just do the process right, and if we we've set it up sort of as a game of chance. As opposed to saying, "Look, to your point, it's it's stochastic, not deterministic." Excuse me. And how do we influence that? How do we influence the outcome? How do we help people perform better? And how do we increase their actual productivity? It's not the quant pure yeah. quantity of activities, but the quantity of activities that ultimately result. But I in think we should order. also ask, "How do we know? How do we know when we're done helping people?" In other words, I don't sure. mean how do we know when we give up on them, but how do we know at which point they're trained? So I don't know if you've ever read any Deming. Yeah, yeah. So Deming used to do this four-day four workshop, and there was a there was an exercise in it where I forget how it worked. They'd fire something at a target or, or, or whatever, and but but the central learning out of it was a person is trained when they produce a consistent output, not when they hit the target. In other words, if you want to train someone to be an archer, the measure of whether or not they're trained is, is not how often they hit the bullseye. It's how often they hit the target, it, right? It, yeah, well, it's the, the size of the cluster. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, in other words, they, they, uh, th this, the standard deviation reduces to a point because the, the, there's a there's kind of a, a diminishing returns when it comes to um, you know the predictability, mm -hmm. and once you get to the point where you're consistent, then you're trained. 
Yeah, and, I, and the point of that conversation is not to advocate for more training, but saying how do we ultimately increase people's ability to improve their productivity if we can agree on what productivity is. Yes, but but we need. But my point is that the we need to understand to to what extent to what extent do we actually improve sales by improving individuals' productivity? That's that's a great question. How much do how much do we actually influence it? And I think we don't know the answer to that because we haven't had mm. any focus on it. Yeah, and we have to be very careful with the question because the question, if we believe that salespeople have, an, have a large amount of influence over whether or not individuals buy, the flip side of that is that we're saying individuals have a, 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 a individuals we, we're, t- we're taking away free will we're assuming that we can take away free will from the buyer no not at all why that one doesn't lead to the other if it's purely if it's purely you know if you're dictating the outcome but if you're collaborating on something why is that taking free will away from the buyer well let's say i let's say i speak with 10 people and i communicate clearly a proposition that my organization has such that they can understand it and evaluate it and do their own kind of, uh, you know, calculate the economics of the deal, mm-hmm. compare it with competitors' products and so on. You would assume that in most cases, customers will end up choosing the vendor whose proposition makes the most economic sense. Possibly. So the job of the salesperson is to communicate the proposition clearly. And then once the salesperson has done that, it's over to the customer to make a decision. And in most cases, we would assume that the customer makes a decision that's in their best interests. Okay. So a salesperson, the salesperson only has so much control over the customer's purchasing decision. The, sales, the salesperson's control over the customer's purchasing decision is limited by their ability to communicate the proposition clearly. Once they've done that, their job's done. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I, Agree in principle on some of that. I mean, there's say I agree. Salespeople have very limited control over the buyers, mm. but I think that especially in a more complex sales environment, which is the one I, I came from and and talk more about, is is yeah. You look at that Gartner that Gartner diagram. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there that enables you to work with a buyer to help define how they want to solve their problem. Yeah, no, I don't want to completely. I don't want to completely dump on salespeople to make it look like that. What do they call them in Silicon Valley? Coin-operated idiots. I don't want to. I don't want to paint a picture that the salesperson is inert because right. that's that's not true. Because there's a couple of mitigating factors here, and that is that in um, in a smaller dollar sales in a smaller dollar sales environment, if a salesperson can can effectively communicate the the the, the proposition then they're competing with a whole bunch of people who can't even do that. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a fantastic accomplishment, and that's worth a lot of money. Yep. So that's something to be proud of, not something to be diminished. I agree. And you could say, well, what about in a major account environment? Well, it turns out that in a major account environment, if you work for SAP, uh, um, you're, probably, you, you're probably competing. In most cases, you're competing against one, one other vendor, maybe two other vendors, maybe three. You know, um, That's it. So... Uh, um, there's a huge amount of work involved in effectively communicating the deal, but you know the deal is going to resolve in the favor of one of three or four vendors max. Mm-hmm. So my view is, 
salespeople don't exert anywhere near the level of control over the customer's purchase as they think they do, but it doesn't matter. They're still adding a significant amount of value and they still deserve to be paid really, really well for what they're doing. But management and executive have to understand that um, there isn't this dial on the back of salespeople that we can turn to double or triple or quadruple their um, effectiveness. Um, if, if we want to see a significant increase in the productivity of the salesperson, um, we need to get them to have more selling conversations. Yeah, certainly one way, right? Yeah, there's only incremental Practice. improvements. There's only incremental improvements to be had from totally agree. training and skills and so on, unless they're incompetent, in which case they shouldn't be on the team. But once they're competent, there's not a lot of upside there. I think there's there's incremental upside, right? I mean, there I, is. Sure. I mean, and I think that's fine. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, Dave Brailsford, Brailsford that ran the Sky Bicycling Team, right? He was all about the incremental gain, marginal gains of 1% improvements. And it's significant over time. Well, but the question over is, time. It, well, not over time. Not over time. It, it, it's not just time. It's, it's, it's over large numbers of opportunities. Yeah. It's not, it's not time. It's the large number of opportunities that you process sure. over time. So, so, yeah, if you can... But, but, but to really get the benefit, you need both. You need an incremental improvement in effectiveness multiplied by a large volume of opportunities. Agree. So if you, can, if you can increase the flow, you get the benefit that comes from the additional flow, but then you multiply the effectiveness of any improvements you make in capability. Yeah. I mean... So I'll add something to that, though. And unfortunately, we need to go. With we have enough for for two episodes here. This was fantastic. I look forward to doing it again. Is um, yeah, no, I, th I think there. This issue of productivity is is effectiveness in the moment. You're right. Comes through. I think through experience. But I think that I'm not saying that training is is necessarily the way to do it. But I think that there's one thing we fail in in sales is giving. Um, I don't know, enabling people to say, yeah, I, these marginal differences applied over volume will make a difference for me. And, I agree. And in that it's not just, hey, we hire Justin or Andy to come in for a day or two days and run a workshop, but it's what are, what are we doing constantly and consistently to help them? So as they're working through this large volume over time, they're getting new insights and perspective to say, well, maybe if I tried this this time, right? Watchmaker, maybe I try a different approach in, in assembling these parts. How many salespeople that you meet really are working on a high volume of sales opportunities? It's relative, right? I, I get, well, well, yeah, I, mean, I somebody, somebody selling a, Somebody that's selling you know, enterprise software and it's $100,000 a year, going to have fewer opportunities. Hey, when I was selling... I don't know. No, I would say the I would say the opposite. I would say if they're doing enterprise deals, uh, and the the lead time is years, they better have they better have a hundred plus open opportunities. What? Maybe I spoke myself. I said they're going to have more than I had when I was selling communication satellite communication systems that sold for five ten million dollars a piece. They're going to have more deals. They should be working on more. Absolutely, but it's going to depend on the situation. Well, I would argue so. So. Uh, yeah, there's an argument that if you're selling, if you're doing five million dollar deals, you should have more because it's probably going to take you longer to close them. But the flip side was, in my case, when I was selling, there were 200 customers in the world that could buy it. Yeah, 
And you only have to do one deal every couple of years, maybe, too. No, it's having to do four to five deals a year. Mm. So, anyway, it depends on the situation. But it's, I'd love to spend more time and get into this in detail because it's, it's, it's important. I think people need to look at, look at sales, continually look at sales differently and think about the logic differently behind how they're measuring, how they're prescribing, how people do it. One of the reasons I enjoy reading your stuff because it challenges, I think. One of the one of the one of the things I like to think is if you have if you if you uh, if you are um, if you have a salesperson and you are able to kind of sit in a room behind them and pull levers that control what they do, um, and th- and there's a lever you've got all these levers you can pull. Um, you know, one causes them to be more skillful; the other one causes them to, you know whatever, mm-hmm. you know, which is the lever that you want to pull. So in other words, if you can, if you can produce an incremental improvement one vector at a time, which is, which vector has the biggest impact on output mm-hmm. dollars banked in other words. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, I do. Which is? And my, my opinion is it's, it's, there's, it's, a, it's a no contest. It's, it's um, volume, volume of activity. Okay, I thought you. Okay, I thought you were going a different direction with the question, which is looking at it from a skill or behavior standpoint of the salesperson. I I would much rather increase if they're lacking in skill and they're lacking in pipeline. I would much rather increase the volume of activity because if you increase the volume of activity, they either master the skill or they get out of the kitchen because it's too hot in there. True. So you end up resolving the problem. The problem ends up resolving itself without your direct intervention. Good perspective. I've never seen a salesperson who has 10 or 15 selling conversations a day that isn't good at talking to people. Doesn't mean they're a good salesperson, though. Well, they, they, they become a good salesperson or they stop being a salesperson. Because if, if you are operating at that volume, it, it is not pleasant. To, it's like if you, if you became a surgeon and you killed everyone you <laughs> operated on, after a while you would conclude... Even if no one, even if management wasn't putting pressure on you, you would con- conclude that it is just, unless you're a psychopath, you would conclude that it is dispiriting. This career is dispiriting. Right. Well, but we could use, say the same thing as if, if we truly have. But that's not actually what's more point, likely to If happen. we really have 0.1% win rates, as then we're killing 99.9% of our patients. And that's okay. <laughs> In this case, it may very well be. Because we don't actually kill them. Right. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, Justin, it's been fantastic talking to you. So, how can people uh, learn more about what you're doing? Oh, um, salesprocessengineering.net is my blog. Hmm? Um, salesprocessengineering.net. I wrote a book called The Machine. So, if people like this, they should go buy the book. It's on Amazon. Yep. Good book. Worth reading. Yeah. All right. The, the Machine. Yeah. And uh, Twitter and all the normal places. All normal places. All right. Justin. We'll make sure it's not four years again. It's been great to chat. We'll look forward to doing it again soon. <laughs> thank you, Andy. Take care. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Justin Roth Marsh, for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. If you could also leave us a rating or a view and let us know how we're doing, we'd really appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. Thanks for your help. And thank you so much also for investing in your personal development today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.